I'm here today with Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Lisa is the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics, and the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, which was recognized as the 2016 Book of the Year by Inglewood Review of Books. Her new book is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All, coming out from Brazos Press. Lisa is a columnist at Sojourners Magazine and serves as an Auburn Theological Seminary Senior Fellow. Her writing has appeared in many national publications, and she has appeared on many national TV networks. In 2015, the Huffington Post named Lisa one of the 50 powerful women religious leaders. And in 2020, Lisa received the Bridge Award from the Selma Center for Nonviolence, Truth, and Reconciliation. You can learn more about Lisa at freedomroad.us. And I also need to say that Lisa has graciously agreed to write a chapter in her upcoming second book in the How to Heal Our Divide series. So very grateful for that. Um, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on all your amazing work. Thank you so much, Brian. I mean, it is really, truly an honor to be with you in conversation today and also with your listeners. Um, thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Um, I have to say that the, the book launch um, team and, and process that Lisa's putting together is one of the most impressive I've seen. And I deal wow. with a lot of different authors. That, that does say a lot. Wow. And, yeah. And so I just, uh, you know, I think it speaks volumes, quite frankly, in terms of people's um, view of you and view of you collaborating with you. Um, mm -hmm. So congratulations on that. I just think it's phenomenal. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> so before we get started on all that, can you tell us more about your background? Because you've had so many interesting experiences. Hmm. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, people ask me, okay, so who are you? And I, it's, it's funny because I, even before I wrote um, Fortune, I would always have to go back and say, I am my ancestors. I mean, I am because they were, and you won't know me if you don't know them. And so I have to introduce you. Um, so um, who am I? I am the seven times great granddaughter of Fortune Game McGee. Um, my likely seven times great grandmother. Um, she was uh, indentured in the 16, I'm sorry, 17, early 1700s, born in 1687. Um, indentured because her mother was white and her father was an African man. Um, her mother was Ulster Scott and her father was most likely from Senegal um, or Mali or Guinea. He was right from that region where the three meet. Um, and, of course, there were no nation states back then, so basically he was from that area, that land. And, and, but she was born at a time that was only 23 years after the very first race laws were ever crafted on American soil. And those race laws were born and were created in order to deal with the perceived problem of mixed-race children that were being born of these mixed-race unions. Now, the unions that they were trying to, you know, the problem they were solving for was uh, Ulster Scott women, uh, English women, Irish women, who were coming over as indentured servants, serving alongside enslaved black men, falling in love with them, and having, and getting married to them, and having children. And so the planter class, who were all white men, 
they got intimidated. You know, they were like, oh, no, you, this, we can't have this. What does this say about us? You know, and also, what do these mixed-race kids say about our potential, um, our potential free labor force? Because now they're white as well as black. So are they free or are they enslaved? And that all hadn't been worked out yet. So that first race law in Maryland, the very first one was in Virginia two years earlier, but the first one in Maryland, um, this is what they declared. They said, if a white woman marries an enslaved black man and has children by that man, then she herself shall become enslaved to her husband's master for the length of her husband's life until her husband dies. And her children shall be enslaved in perpetuity, meaning that from thenceforth, her children will now be slaves and children's children and children's children's children all through. If, if their mother, if, if they could trace their lineage to a white woman who married a black man, they shall be enslaved. So <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to then know that um, you know, you just you flash forward a few years and the same legislature comes back clutching their pearls because they realize that this unintended consequence, according to some, some might argue it was intended, that planters began to force their indentured white women to marry enslaved black men and then populate their plantations with free labor by giving birth to children and who would then be enslaved in perpetuity. So they changed the law, and by the time that uh, fortune was indentured, it had been changed a few times. And under that law, um, it was the bottom line was fortune's mother was white, and so therefore she could not be enslaved. That was a whole big thing that I do talk about in Chapter 1, how did that happen? But she could not be enslaved because her mother was white but she could be indentured and she ended up being indentured until the age of 31 and, um, and bore several children in the midst of her indenture. And those children then um, were then indentured because that was the law. It wasn't just that she would be indentured, but her children would be indentured for 31 years if she bore an illegitimate child in the midst of that indenture. Um, and if that child was born um, to a black man, if it was born to a white man, then the indenture for her children would be 21 years. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's just so, so crazy. The, I mean, I didn't is. realize until I read your book about all these different laws and how they change. And yes. oh my goodness. Yes. So you see, this is the thing. Like it's race is literally a set of laws. Like that's what it was. Yeah. It did not exist on this land until we legislated it. Mm. Um, it, it existed in the minds, in the imaginations of people of European descent, basically because it was handed down from the Pope. The Pope was the first person to kind of give us the, the, the hierarchies of human belonging. Yeah. yeah. Through the manifest destiny, through, through the doctrine of discovery, yeah. um, separating um, uh, uh, civilized from uncivilized and saying that an explorer could, could go snatch the land and enslave the people if they were uncivilized and unchristian. So all of these things, they all make me who I am, right? So I am Fortune, but I am also Leah, and Leah was the last enslaved woman in our family, um, enslaved in South Carolina, um, and who suffered great loss that I go into in Chapter 3. But I'm also um, Lizzie, right, who, who escaped the terror of Jim Crow in the South, in South Carolina and made the first break in our family 
and moved north in the Great Migration and, um, and made it in Philadelphia because she was light enough to pass. And so she did. And then she called for her children to come north and join her, my grandmother among them, um, who never again set foot in the South because she was she had such a horrible experience there. We believe that she might have been raped while there um, by one of the men that, that she worked for in domestic service. And she worked in domestic service, by the way, because after the close of Reconstruction, um, one of the laws that was passed in, in South Carolina um, when the dirty deal was made in, in 1877 that um, pulled the troops out of the South in order to have the South play, North, play nice with the North after that election year. Um, what happened was South Carolina passed a law that said people of African descent can only work in two kinds of industries, either the fields or in domestic labor. I swear to you, mm. that is what they did in wow. law, by law. Wow. So that relegated my ancestors, Lizzie among them, to only being able to, and, and Willa, my grandmother, to only being able to work in domestic service. And it was a very common experience of domestic servants, women, to be raped. So the rape was as a result of the law. Do you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah. So, and then push forward, and I am my mother and my father. My mother was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, she actually dated Stokely Carmichael for a hot minute, you know, and <laughs> I, <laughs> really, That's great. You know the black power guy. And we, we talk about his black power speech in her chapter. Um, and my father, my father um, went to core meetings and kind of tested it out, but he was more, he's just an, he not just, he's an artist. And so he was a photographer and for the black theater scene. And, um, and my mom, you know, uh, became a psychiatric nurse and, put herself through school. So I am all of them. And I am me. I became a Christian in the midst of an evangelical Christian in the midst of um, the, the rise of the religious right. Um, the people that I was associated with were not particularly political, except that they made it very clear I had to become a Republican in order to be Christian. Um, when I became a Christian in 1983, um, the same year that Ronald Reagan was running for his second, um, second uh, term in office, and uh, that ended up being right at that same time when the religious right was kind of crafting its, um, crafting its, its strategy. And the main strategy that it's, it put together was the strategy to overflip, to flip the, the Supreme Court in its makeup and its, cal in its um, weight. At that point, it was weighted toward liberals. And he, they said, we can't win with liberalism um, being at the, in, the, in the court, so we have to make it a conservative court. And the reason why they were so concerned with that is because they had just spent the last five years, um, maybe even more than that, fighting to maintain pure white space on Bob Jones University campus. And they lost that fight in that year, in 1983. That's when they looked up and said, we need to start the religious right. And what better, um, what better uh, issue do we have to actually then carry this forward? Because we can't use race anymore because it's not, it's not, it's not in. We, people won't really follow us if we're, if they think we're racist. So instead we're going to, we're going to make the flashpoint women. We're going to make the flashpoint Roe v. Wade. And that ended up being their red, their, you know, their flag until this day. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the progression is just abominable. I mean, going all the way back to, you know, the 1600s, I mean. Yeah, and that is the progression of my book, yeah. Fortune, because it's simply my, my family's story. 
And when people say that, you know, well, you know, all that's history, all that's done, you know, we shouldn't even, you know, think about that. I mean, come on. And it's like, it's still happening today. I mean, I know you talked with me earlier about the whole voting rights situation. Oh my How goodness. many states, you know, are legislating to decrease the vote and particularly yeah. decrease minority vote? Yes. 19 states have passed voter suppression laws, explicitly voter suppression laws, that have taken away almost all or all um, voting poll polling places in black counties and black cities only left one, um, for example, the one, I believe it was in Tulsa, where they literally had no voting stations, no polling stations in, in black communities. All the black communities had to, had to commute, basically, if they could, to white areas in order to vote. This is not, that's apartheid. That's what yeah, that is. Yeah. And that is literally what has been, it's being legislated all over the country, not the least of which in Texas and Georgia and places like that, um, places where, where the vote is really in contention right now because the population is changing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think, of, we think of racial inequity, we think of racial injustice as being something of the past if you're not like listening to the news every day. But friends, it is present. It is present because the same, the same machinations, the same motivations are present today that were present in 1664 Absolutely. when they passed that very first race law. It's always been about one thing, Brian, one. It's been about maintaining, actually first securing, and then protecting, and then maintaining white male dominance. That's it. That's literally it. And it's all about power. Domin yeah, dominance and money. That's it. That's mm -hmm. it. That's what mm -hmm. it's always been about. That's what it is right now. So the work that fortune calls us to is the work of telling the truth about that, mm -hmm. telling the truth about what really happened, and then redoing the work of repairing what this hierarchy, hierarchy of human belonging that we call race has broken in the world. Mm -hmm. And then finally, moving into the work of healing from all of the trauma that it has laid on our backs. Well, it's, you know, unfortunate that we have to do all this, right? I mean, but, mm -hmm. but it's fortunate that, you know, people like you are stepping up to do it, to tell the stories, to get a lot of us educated, quite frankly, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, there's a lot of things that I've read, not in only in your book, but some of the other books that I've read about mm -hmm. reparations and, you know, history mm -hmm. now, I didn't know. Yeah. They weren't taught to me when I was a kid and, yeah. um, you know, or anywhere else. And so it's like, I feel like, um, you know, the blinders are coming off in some sense. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> Isn't that the goal? That's the goal, right? Of writing. The goal of writing is to shine light. Yeah. That's yeah. the goal of writing. And if we can shine just a little bit of light on this, I really do believe that it can make a huge difference. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged actually that, that, even in your own experience that blinders are coming. Blinders came off for me in the research. I didn't know that thing about, um, about the law that was passed in South yeah. Carolina. I had yeah. no idea about that law. But that totally explains why would Lizzie pick up and leave everything that her family had known for hundreds of years in order to go to a place she'd never been um, and didn't, she only knew like one or two people in Washington, D.C. and nobody that I know of in Philadelphia. Why would she do that? She would do that. Because the image of God in us, we are all created in the image of God, meaning we have 
human dignity, every last one of us. And what that means is that every last one of us was created to exercise agency in the world, to help shape the world. And when you push a people group down, you are crushing the image of God on earth. It, 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 begs, it begs for light, like, like, like flowers and plants beg for light. The image of God begs for oxygen to breathe and flourish and grow. So for her, that oxygen, she said, north, I have to go north to get that oxygen. And that was enough to make her not only leave the life that she had known in the South, but her children, her darkest children, she left down South so that she would not be found out. So she did pass. She passed for white for a good number of years. And then she was found out when she fell in love with a dark-skinned man. And then at that point, she was taken off of the floor because they never had waitresses, black waitresses, on the floor of restaurants in Philadelphia or New Jersey. Instead, they had us back in the kitchen. So she worked as a baker for the rest of her life. She actually became a really renowned baker at the Grand Hotel in Philadelphia. And, and get this, there's another story that came out in the research. She, during the, the Great Depression, she would take her, the extra baked goods home every day and feed the neighbors with it. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in reading this book, and obviously listening to you talk about it, it's clear that you spent a lot of time researching this. I did. How, I mean, how long years. ago, how long ago did you start? I started in 1991. Wow. Oh my. 1991. But see, when I started, I didn't start thinking I'm going to write a book, right? <laughs> I started just thinking, I want to know who I am. I mean, as, as people of African descent, Part of what it means to be of African descent in America and to have descended from enslaved people is that once you get past the Civil War, our histories become hidden. Um, we are not documented, intentionally not documented, only in terms of names. So it becomes incredibly hard to trace. So I grew up through, for the first 21 years of my life, kind of only knowing my grandparents' names not knowing anything beyond who my grandparents were and not knowing much about them because they didn't talk about it because it was too traumatic for them to talk about. Um, I, I also knew Alex Haley's story really well because I watched Roots a million times. So Aunt Kizzy became my Aunt Kizzy. You know, <laughs> it, was like, it was like family by proximity. Yeah, by proximity. Yeah. So I wanted to know, though, who am I? And how did I get here? So my mom and I actually embarked on that project together. We would we go on the phone together when I was um, living in New York City, just out of college. And it was the number one way that we would bond. And I would ask her to share with me the family tree. I still have my original sketch of, my, of the family wow, tree. I cool. sure do. I, I really do. <laughs> um, and that sketch had no names, only dates and relationships. Great-grandpa lived in this time. Great-great-grandpa lived in this time. This is where they were. Um, I didn't know their names yet, though. So... The, the work, that work, that work of family story, you know, excavation, is not only the work, though, of people of African descent. It is also essentially the work of people of European descent as well. Because whiteness as a construct, this, this thing that got started in 1662, that to be white was to not have, and particularly white male, was to not be slave to be the opposite of slave, to actually be ruler, to be of the citizen class, the class that would have the right to own land, the right to take to 
take someone to court and to and to be a witness in court, the right to vote, the right to um, to start a business, the right, all these rights, um, that was explicitly given to white men through that first um, race law and all the iterations afterwards. And so whiteness developed then, but it required of people of European descent full um, full loyalty, explicit loyalty. So they could not um, hold on to the loyalty or the identity that they held from their homeland. If they were Lithuanian or German or Armenian, they had to give that up in order to become white. And so when you have your, your central identity as this thing that we call white, then it lives in another world. It lives floating somewhere because it's not tethered to anything. It's not real. It's, it's like a ghost, a figment. It's created by a law. And it means something different, even in different, in different nations that you go to. White, um, white, white, white manifests differently in Brazil than it does here, right? A white Brazilian there would be called white. A white Brazilian here would be called Latina, Latino, <laughs> right? So, like, really, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's different. And so, so it's not real. So my, my, my um, strong encouragement to people of European descent is, hey, you've got work to do too. You have to mine your family stories to remember, remember, reconnect yourself to your own story, to your own family's land, to where they actually came from, and why did they leave, and how did they get here? I guarantee you it was one of three things that got them here. One, oppression. Two, poverty. Or three, they might have been among that truly noble class, and I mean truly, and just in terms of they were called nobles, they were granted land by the imperial powers that, that colonized this land in the very beginning. Those are the three major ways that people came here Absolutely. Um, of European descent. And I think that as you connect with that, with that experience, there's a grounding that can happen for you. So you don't need to be, feel threatened by the rise of other people who are grounded in their experience. You too can be grounded. You too have an identity. You too have a heritage. You too um, are rooted to earth and rooted to story and rooted to people. And then maybe, just maybe, there can, we can lay down our arms against the image of God in others and simply be human. Well, I have to tell you that, I mean, when I was reading your book, I made a note on my calendar. I mean, I live by my calendar. Not, nothing ever happens unless it's on my calendar. I know, but I put a date on my calendar for later in February on the weekend to finally go to Ancestry.com and start doing this. Oh, I've my never God. Done that. I've never done that Yay. before. I've always had in the back of my mind that someday I want to do this, you know. Um, oh so I don't, I know very little about my ancestry other than just the direct patriarchal lineage mm -hmm. uh, for a few mm -hmm. generations. And so um, your book inspired me, literally, to, <laughs> to put it on my calendar and force myself to do this. <laughs> and they're not paying me. They should be, but they're not paying me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is, this is wonderful. It's, and, and like, this is, this is not an advertisement. You can also do it through my heritage or my family. There's lots of different spaces that you can do that and do your DNA too, because you get a fuller story that way. Mm. There's a, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways that we can begin to be rooted again. We can begin to be reconnected to each other and to, through connection to our own stories. 
So congratulations on that. That's fabulous. <laughs> well, thank you for, for uh, motivating me to do that. <laughs> so um, the book is divided into three parts. Could you mm-hmm. explain to folks what those are? Yeah, totally. The first part of the book um, is all about the roots of this thing we call race and the roots of the hierarchies of human belonging in America. And it starts with Fortune's story, Fortune Game McGee, first um, American, as in American soil, born person um, in my family, 1687. It moves then to Lawrence, the Lawrence family, um, and their intersections, maybe with the Cherokee Trail of Tears, definitely with the Civil War, and, um, and the ways that, uh, that we see uh, the roots of the racial construct born out in that context. Then it moves to Leah, the last enslaved um, woman in our family. So then we, we mine the, the realities of enslavement and, and the cost of that, um, not only on Leah, but also on future generations. Um, that's part one, the roots. The second part is on the, the degradation and the resistance. You might also call that the fruits, the fruits of the construct called race. What was born out of those roots? So we, we then moved to Lizzie's story, the great migration, and also her story of incredible loss that led her to pick up and go. Um, we see the story of um, Reynaldo Ianita. Um, Reynaldo and Anita are my, my great-grandparents on my father's side, and they emigrated to America um, to the mainland um, from, from annexed Puerto Rico. So we go into Caribbean slavery because their, their um, line goes back through Barbados to Western Africa. So we talk about Caribbean slavery and what was that like? And also the immigration to America and how was that? What was that like? Um, and then um, go to my mom's um, uh, chapter, which is um, all about the civil rights movement because she was a part of that movement and myself looking at the rise of the religious right and how that intersects with my story. Finally, in part three, we're asking the question, how do we repair what race broke in the world? Um, so we're looking at truth-telling, reparation, and forgiveness. Forgiveness for those things that can never be repaired, mm-hmm. like those communities that were broken up by eminent domain or by Indian removals. Those are things that will never be repaired. Um, if we hold on to them as, as people who, are, um, who were oppressed, who were colonized, if we demand that back, we will die demanding. We will die with a deficit in our souls. So what does it mean then for us to release those things that well, they cannot come back? And then to demand of God, okay, God, you ante up because God has cattle on a thousand hills, right? And so God can ante up um, and, and God can move mountains. So we can get our needs met. It just may not come in the way that we expect. So those, those three chapters close the book and um, the, the ultimate call is for us to do now, to do what it takes to repair what race broke in the world. So it really is an amazing book. Um, and Thank you. Uh, uh, let me just read a couple of uh, comments that other folks have made. Um, Reverend sure. Dr. William Barber says it's brilliant. <laughs> um, Kirsten Power says Harper is one of our nation's most critical voices on the issues of race, gender, faith, and justice. And then Jen Hatmaker says, Lisa tells the whole truth of our historical existence as a nation built upon racist structures, ideologies, and laws. And it's like, yep, that captures it. You know, I mean, that, that, that's a really good, succinct description, you know, of your book. Um, you know, 
I think so importantly with all of the personal stories, you know, the, the ancestral stories that you uh, wove through it was just really compelling, quite, quite honestly. Thank you. Appreciate that. It, it was a journey, a true journey of research and then also the writing, you know, the writing, you have to go back into it and actually kind of live it. And um, that took, that took on some level great faith. I had to, I had to call my friend, literally my best friend and ask her to pray me through writing some of those chapters. So mm. it means a lot to hear you say that. Thank you. So, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I mean, your launch team is just amazing. You've got all kinds of events and things coming up. Do you want to just say a few words about, you know, some sure. of the things that are planned for the rest of your launch? I am so excited. <laughs> so the launch is actually happening over the course of February, Black History Month, and we have creatively dubbed it Black Fortune Month. <laughs> um, we, are, we are not just looking about the history. We are looking about how, how, do we, how do we leverage this month to help begin to fix what race broke in the world. And so we're going to launch on February 6th with um, uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church and Luke, um, St. Luke's Episcopal Cathedral down in Atlanta are going to be doing a host, a, a co-hosting an event with me in conversation with the rector at, at St. Luke's, Winnie Vargasi, and then also um, uh, Reverend and Senator Raphael Warnock, which is going to be fabulous. Can't, yes, can't yes. even believe this is happening. Can't believe it. <laughs> and it'll be live too and streamed. Um, next, a few days later, two days later, we have the actual launch of the book. Where it, hits, it hits bookshelves on the 8th of February, and we're going to be doing a major Twitter storm. So join us on the hashtag FortuneBook around 4 p.m. Eastern time all across the country. Um, we are going to be in conversation on Twitter about the book Fortune with people who have already had a chance to read it and who will be giving comment and, and, you know, just celebrating the release and then finally, um, two weeks, two days later, we'll be at Trinity UCC um, in Chicago, Trinity U United Church of Christ with um, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. That'll be a streamed event um, live, but also virtual. Um, and so it is going to be an awesome conversation with an incredible intellectual in, the, in today's um, church who's going to be going deep and he knows his stuff. He knows yes. his stuff. It's so yes. exciting. Yes. And then throughout the month, we have about 15 other events that are going to be launched. And you can find out more about those events at blackfortunemonth.com. Blackfortunemonth.com. Okay. Wonderful. Super. Yeah. Well, um, Again, um, the name of the book is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. And uh, you can find it at that website that Lisa just mentioned and also freedomroad.us. And um, Lisa, again, congratulations. Um, I'm very, you know, just thrilled by what you're, what you're doing. Um, Thank you. Normally, when I conclude these interviews, I always ask folks, okay, what's next? You know, can you talk anything about the future? And I don't know. <laughs> I, I kind of really don't want to ask you that, honestly, because yeah. I don't want to take anything away from this amazing plan that you've already got going. And I'll have you back next time, you know, when it's time right. to talk about whatever you're going to do next. Let's so. do that. That sounds good. Oh, and I forgot to mention, actually, that at the end of the month, on February 28th, a bunch of faith leaders are going to be flying into D.C., hopefully including yourself, Brian. It'll be really fun. And then the next day, on March 1st, so this is actually looking forward, March 1st, we're going to be going to the Hill in order to talk with the leaders of the H.R. 40 and T.R.H.T. Commission Act um, bills that are put forward in Congress right now that are calling for truth commissions and studies to find out what it would take 
to actually do reparations for people of African descent in America. So we're pushing for that, pushing for repair in the last days of February. So you can join us for those take action days as well. Yay, yay, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, again, Lisa, congratulations. Thanks so much for sharing you know, this with us, this whole story and all the incredible work that you're doing to launch this. So really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian.